Amen. Welcome to Veritas Church. My name is Jacob Warren. I serve as one of the pastors here at Veritas. And if you're new with us this morning, I'm really, really glad that you're here. Maybe you got one of these handouts on the way in. It says, uh, welcome to Veritas on the front of it. And if you're new, there's a connect card at the bottom. We'd really love to connect with you uh, throughout the week, be able to extend out just a friendly hand to you, a phone call, an email, just saying, hey, uh, we'd love to meet you where you're at and welcome you into this family because we really do believe this church, Veritas Church, is one of many families um, of churches uh, that are around this city of Fayetteville, worshiping Jesus, proclaiming his name, gathering for worship, just like we are all over this city right now. And we want to welcome you into this uh, church family. And if this is a place that you would consider home, we want to welcome you into it. Um, maybe uh, you're here this morning and uh, you're, maybe you've been doubting. Uh, maybe you're here and you'd say that you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe your friend promised you lunch afterwards and he kind of drug you along and you don't really know what you're doing here. Um, but you're coming with questions. Questions like, who, who really is God? Uh, like, what is this life all about? Uh, can we really know it? Uh, is, if there is a truth out there, ultimate truth, can we really grasp it? Or maybe you're here and you are a follower of Jesus and you're asking questions like, well, who am I? What, what story is God telling in my life? Why am I actually here? Where am I headed? Why is my life so hard? And, or maybe you're just here and you're thinking like, man, Jacob, you're going for the jugular like early. Like you're, you're asking some hard questions like right off the cuff. Uh, well, maybe uh, you can understand it a little bit better like this. Uh, if that feels a little too heavy, maybe you're like me uh, when you arrive in a new city. Maybe you're new to Fayetteville and you're asking yourself the question like, where's the best cup of coffee here? Where's the best slice of pizza? Where's the best chicken sandwich? And I know that the, the debates rage out there, but I will die on this hill, okay? Uh, there's a place called Napkins, and if you've not heard about it, it's the promised land uh, for the Nashville hot chicken sandwich. I, I, I will fight you over this, okay? It is the best chicken sandwich in town. It's amazing. See, when it comes to God, though, and the questions that we are bringing, no matter how we show up here, um, all of us are coming with questions. Uh, the good news is that God doesn't leave us to figure it all out, just try a whole bunch of things and kind of come up with our favorite flavors and say, okay, this is what God is truly about, or this is uh, what I believe truth really is. See, God loves us enough to meet us, to show up with us, to meet us in our places of doubt and fear, and, and, and he provides answers, the only answers that can truly satisfy. He provides satisfaction that's real and lasting and does not fade. See, throughout this story today that we're going to continue in the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 41, we're going to see that this story is a story about clarity and certainty, about who God is and who we are. This is a story about where the answers are. This is a story about where to find bread and where to find bread that really satisfies. God's going to show us that through this story that he's telling this divine game plan of how he's going to draw all peoples to himself, how he's going to provide blessing for the whole earth through the appointing of one man who trusts, obeys, and rules over all things for their flourishing. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Genesis chapter 41. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible and you grabbed one of those black hardback ones on the way in, uh, consider that thing our gift to you if you've grabbed it. We love the Bible here. We want you uh, to have a Bible as well. So uh, whether you pull it up on your phone or you've got it, we'll just follow along on the screens or you've got a Bible in front of you. I'm just glad that we get to read God's word together this, this morning. 
But before we read these words on the page, um, there's 57 verses we're going to be walking through. I'm going to give us a little cheat sheet about what to see about the characters in this story. There are three main characters. First and foremost, uh, there is God. Then there's Joseph. And then beyond that, there is Pharaoh himself. What we're going to see about Joseph today, like if you remember the old I spy things, this is the key I want you to have in mind. Look for these things when we see Joseph in the story. He continues to trust God while suffering. Look for him showing humility in his gifting and rejecting credit for his gifting, giving credit where it's due to God himself. See Joseph seeing his own blessing as a means to bless others. And what we're going to see in Pharaoh this morning is that he's going to actually see his own need for truth, for answers. And he's going to accept that he, see, he needs help from outside of himself. He needs someone else to save him. And Pharaoh ultimately is going to give up all control in order to be saved. He's going to submit himself to a man. And finally, we are going to see these things about God, that God reveals himself as one who brings answers, who reveals his plan to those who trust him. As a God who not only gives answers, but brings healing. God brings healing in this story from wounds in the past. And also he brings fruitfulness in places of affliction and suffering and famine. Let's begin this story in Genesis chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. They fed in the reed grass, and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them. They stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker into custody into the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. If you were here this past week and heard the story again of, of Genesis chapter 40, of, of Joseph interpreting these dreams, one for the baker and one for the cheap cupbearer, uh, you may be surprised to see how much time is given to a surprising voice at the beginning of this chapter. It's not the voice of Joseph telling this story. It's not the voice of God even speaking these words in Genesis, 40, Genesis 41. It is the voice of Pharaoh speaking. It is the story of his dreams that we are told, a pagan king of Egypt. And Pharaoh has a pair of terrifying dreams. This is the third pair of dreams in the book of Genesis. 
And if, if you know anything about the way how to read the Bible, if things come in pairs or if things come in threes, it signifies their importance. If this being the third pair seems like this could be of vast importance to this king of Egypt. See, Pharaoh is giving a pair of terrifying dreams for him. And I kind of imagine Pharaoh um, experiencing these dreams like he's a little bit in the, like a, the, the, the show Stranger Things. Season four just came out. Maybe you've watched it and you, you feel like I'm a pagan for watching it e anyways. But it's terrifying, right? Pharaoh is experiencing these dreams of these thin cows cannibalizing, eating these other fat, plump cows. And for us, we're removed from an agrarian society, right? So like, I don't know about you, but I don't hang around cows and corn all day, right? Now, to be honest, I'm enough of a redneck. I was at my, dad, my dad's house yesterday, right? In his garden, hanging around his corn. He doesn't have cows, he had horses, right? But right now, we're hurting for rain. If you have vegetables, if you've got plants or flowers outside or just a front yard, you know that we need rain right now. Everything is beginning to crumple. It's beginning to wilt. It's beginning to dry up. And those dry ears of corn ate the plump ears of corn. And in the eyes of Pharaoh and this society, everything revolves around seasons of fruitfulness. Everything revolves around of life and health of the plants around you to be able to provide food for the other seasons where there's not. So this would have been horrifying for him. In fact, the phrase, his spirit was troubled, means he was greatly distressed and even tormented by these dreams. He goes to his magicians and he goes to all the, the, the wisest people he can think of. He gathers them around him and his entire staff has no answers for him. Pharaoh is desperate for answers. He's hungry for answers here. So much so that he's willing to do anything, even consult a Hebrew slave who's been wasting away in prison for years. And this is the moment when the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph, the one who had interpreted his dreams. Now it's significant, uh, if you remember from last week, um, the cupbearer has, has a, a little bit of a selective memory here in his retelling of the stories. Here's some things that uh, just kind of didn't jump off the page for you, but they did in my study. See, Joseph made it clear that he did not have the power to interpret dreams. He makes it emphatic in his story. I don't have the power to interpret dreams, but that God did. See, he fails to mention also that the only thing Joseph had asked in return is that he remember him before Pharaoh. Like he's been sitting on this promise for years, just absolutely forgetting about it, right? But at this moment, the important thing that Pharaoh needs to know is that Joseph interpreted his dreams perfectly. And this brings us to see what God is doing at this point in the story. God is providing sovereignly here. See, God's sovereignly causing the cupbearer to remember his offenses on that day in the moment of distress of Pharaoh to remember Joseph and his giving the interpretation of the dreams. This is the th third and final pair of dreams that Joseph is going to interpret in the book of, of Genesis. And so we not only see God as providentially bringing it to the mind of the cupbearer, but he is providing here. Don't miss God as provider. He provides the dreams to Pharaoh. He provides the man in the court to su suggest a solution. And God provides Joseph as a source of answers of interpretation for, for Pharaoh's dream. But where's, where's Joseph in all of this? Joseph is still in the pit. 
Joseph is still in a place of darkness. He still doesn't know what's going on. He's continuing to serve the captain of the guard faithfully, but being forgotten by the cupbearer until this moment. But we're about to see Joseph go from the pit to the palace. Let's continue this story in verse 14 and see God's plans at work here. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Pause there for a second. Can you imagine how bad this guy smelled? Could you imagine how rough this dude would have looked? He would look worse than Tom Hanks in The Castaway, right? Have y'all seen that meme of him like playing Mr. Rogers and the Castaway guys? And it's like, yeah, church planning, right? Yeah, church planner year one, he looks all nice and dressed up. He's got his hair done. He's got a great shirt on. Like church planning year nine, big old scruffy build, like screaming like a prophet, has no idea what's going on, right? <laughs> this is what Joseph would have looked like, right? Joseph wouldn't have been rough looking. They're like, get this guy a shower before he bring him before Pharaoh. So they clean him up, he shaves, gets all ready. Uh, Hebrew men would have wore beards. Egyptians did not do that. They shaved about every hair on their body. So they got him all prepped and they bring him before Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh says to Joseph this in verse 15. I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. And I've heard that it is said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Look how Joseph answers. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I've never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as in the beginning." Then I awoke. Also I saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered and thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then we see the answer from Joseph in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them, will, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten all the land of Egypt. But famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by the, the reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. Set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers in the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Let's stop there for now. 
In this section, there's three big things happening there. Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams. Joseph reveals that these dreams are actually God's plans revealed to Pharaoh. And then Joseph finally proposes a solution. Notice in the retelling of Pharaoh's dreams, his emphasis on how terrifying these cows are to Pharaoh. If you think about a king, when we think about a king as portrayed in movies or anything in, in real life, we think of them as the man with the answers. The guy who's supposed to have it all together. See, pharaohs at this time were worshipped as deities themselves. They were worshipped as gods. They regarded themselves as gods. And how do we see Pharaoh perceived here and portrayed? He's cowering. Pharaoh is terrified. He's absolutely baffled. He doesn't have answers. He's willing to come to this Hebrew slave to receive answers. See, Commentaries noted again and again that we might not miss Pharaoh's fear and helplessness because it stands in sharp contrast to the God of Joseph, to Yahweh, the one who provides clarity and answers. See, Pharaohs themselves would be shown in this story in their true helplessness and mortality. This Pharaoh would die. While all of the gods of Israel would show, and the God of Israel himself would be shown as the one and only true God who's shown to be in, in, in control of all things. See, Joseph explains that the seven good cows and the seven good ears are seven years, and then the, the other sevens are bad years. And essentially, like the dream show in dramatic fashion, these years of famine would be swallowed up unless someone else could be done about it. And notice the way that Joseph frames the explanations here. He starts with the statement about God in verse 16. Let's see these said again. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me, God will give the Pharaoh a favorable answer. See, he's giving credit where credit is due. Joseph is not saying and parading his gifting of the way in which God is actually using him as a means by which Pharaoh should actually worship him. He's not parading that and saying, well, if, if I give you an interpretation, then you're going to have to pay me some money. You're going to have to take me out of the pit. He's not doing any of that. He's actually giving all of the credit to God himself. God is the one who deserves credit about answers. Then in verse 25, he gives the credit again to God. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. Who's given an answer? God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Joseph is proclaiming to Pharaoh, that God is really your provider here. Anything you experience, good or bad, this is God actually giving you that. God's giving you answers here. God is in his grace and in his mercy giving you answers about what's going to happen in the future, how to save your people. And finally, at the end of the explanation in verse 32, it says this, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. God will shortly bring it about. See, Joseph is telling Pharaoh, this, this God, when he says something's going to happen, he follows through with his word. He provides certainty. He speaks, and no one can thwart his plans. He makes plans, and they can never fail. This is the God who has given you these dreams. See, maybe you need to be reminded, church, this morning. Maybe you've got something going on in your own life. Maybe you've got a place of struggle or doubt within yourself. 
And you've got to be reminded this morning that God really is at work right here in the right now. That God really is the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will, like Ephesians 1.11 says. And that's actually good news, that we don't live in an unordered, chaos-filled universe. That there is a God who has spoken and created all things and upholds all things by the counsel of his will. God is on the throne, and it's good news that he is in control. Not Pharaoh, not Joseph, not you or I. God is in control. And so Joseph comes before this cowering king looking for answers, not only interpreting his dreams, but laying out a game plan to rescue Egypt from sure destruction. And what does he say? You've got to select one man, right? Put him over all the land of Egypt to, con- to conduct the overseers, to farm all the land for all it's worth for those seven good years, and you're going to keep a fifth of all the grain in the storehouses for all the seven bad years to be able to redistribute afterwards. Let me just tell you, some of you guys already hear that, and you're like, I don't like that tax plan. I'm not about that, right? We would have the whole like Nile River Tea Party if that happened, right? But is this how Pharaoh responds? Does he reject Joseph's interpretation because, yeah, he gives him good news, but he also gives him really bad news? And his game plan, man, that's risky. There's a lot of risk built into that. Why, why should so much power, so much control, so much authority be given over to this one person to save everyone? Let's see how Pharaoh responds in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater to you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine lemon, and put a chain around his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus they set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaneth-Paneah. And he gave him in marriage to Esnath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. What do we see happening here? Where have we heard this before? A man being sent, set over all of the land, being given a, a mandate to go, follow, obey his command, be fruitful and multiply. Where do we see a man being made in the image of a king? A man being clothed with dignity and honor, having the signet ring put on his clothes. Do do you see what's happening here? Joseph is being painted as a new Adam. He's a new Adam set over the land to rule it and keep it. That he would have dominion over all of it, just like God said to all of men and women and all of creation and humankind have 
dominion over all the earth. This is a new Adam we have here in his kingly clothes. And he even gives him bling. He puts a gold chain around this dude's neck. Couldn't be more clear. This is the guy. No one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt without Joseph's consent. That is absolute rule. It's not just like Adam. It's just like Adam given all the rule over the garden. But it's not only that. Pharaoh also names him. Gives him a name. Being established by Pharaoh himself to rule this new garden of Egypt. Let's see what Joseph does with it. Look at verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. Under his rule, it produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food over these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put all the food in the cities, and in every city, the food from there in the fields around it. And Joseph stored up the grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until it ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Esenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread out over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Joseph was faithful to work and keep this new garden land of Egypt during these first seven years. And God kept his word that the following seven years were going to be years of famine. God provided a way of escape for the the Egyptians through this new Adam, Joseph. And not only that, this story ends with how God has provided for not only Joseph, but all the earth. The ways that God provides for Joseph in this story could not be more clear. It might be easier to talk about the ways God doesn't provide for Joseph. He provides him with status, dignity, freedom from prison, new clothes, a wife, kids, and when he names his two boys really reveals the emotional and spiritual ways that God has provided for Joseph. Let's look at the two names of his boys again. Look at verse 51. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. See, that name Manasseh, God has made me forget all my hardship. That means that God has provided real emotional healing for Joseph. Think about all of those years in the prison. Think about all of that time spent about thinking about the ways that his, his father loved him, but his brothers betrayed him. He got so much so that they hated him so much, they sold him 
into slavery. And the disappointment when he rose up to prominence in Potiphar's house and he was lied against and thrown into prison. Years. God has provided healing. He's provided release in many ways from many past wounds. We're not told how long it took for Joseph here. This is at least 14 years this passage right here is spanning. It took a long time, probably. But he was able to give credit where credit was due, where God really did provide release from past wounds. Then his second boy, his baby boy, Ephraim. God has made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. In the same place where God appointed him to suffer, God has now provided a way for him to flourish. In the same place. Redemption for all of those hard years. Just think about how many of us, or maybe the people in his own life, just said, just called those years in the pit wasted years. No, those years in the pit and the suffering were preparing him for something. It was preparing him for that moment. It was preparing him to be shaped into an image where, it, where Pharaoh started looking around and saying, like, who's the one in whom the Spirit of God? It was easy to point Joseph out of the crowd. He had been shaped in his suffering to look more like God, to respond in the ways that he would respond. There's ways that his sanctification happened in that pit more than any other way could have happened for Joseph. And lastly, we see that through Joseph, obedience and faithfulness, God's plans were to bless the world. Verse 57 tells us that the whole earth came to Egypt to buy grain. This was the only place on earth where you can get bread in the famine. And this bread would save the lives of countless people. It would even be the reason that Joseph is reunited with his brothers again in the chapters ahead. See, for a moment, it looks like, if we were to close the book on Genesis right now, it looks like we've found the one. It looks like we found the one whom God promised would come, reverse the curse, to crush the head of the serpent, to bring us back into the garden, to bring us to the place of flourishing and fulfillment, right? This human who partners with God, being filled with his own spirit, who works and keeps the ground, that brings us back to the garden again. But Joseph, even though he's an incredible picture of faithfulness and obedience, he is far from perfect. He is not the one whom God would open a doorway back to life with him through. See, the bread that Joseph offered here had to be bought. I don't know if you noticed that. Even to the Egyptians themselves, they had to buy back the grain that they gave. And that, that bread that they made with it only satisfied for a little while. You'd get hungry again. You had to provide for your family even more. And one day, all that bread would run out, and they'd need to farm more, and they'd need to supply themselves even more. See, but the good news of the gospel is that there's a bread that will never run out, that will always satisfy there's a bread that's so precious that you can never pay for it. And, but now and always, it will all be offered to you for free. Thousands of years later, Jesus of Nazareth would come on the, screen, on the scene preaching and teaching the good news of the kingdom. That the kingdom had finally come. That the good news of the gospel is that the kingdom is now, the kingdom is here. And he would proclaim these words in John chapter 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread 
of life. The bread of life would come to us that need not be bought, but be given for us and sacrificed for us. That the words of Isaiah might come true. Come, buy bread and money without price. Come, buy drink without money. Come, drink deeply from fountains of grace. We see the true bread come into the world is Jesus Christ himself who would come looking very much like this character of Joseph. And so church, we need to ask ourselves the question, have we come to Jesus as the true bread of life? Or do we believe it could be found elsewhere? Maybe you're coming here this morning and feel like, man, I got a good life. I got a good, a decent marriage. My kids aren't absolutely insane. You know, I got a good job. You know, I got a, a vacation coming up. You know, life is good. Things are all right right now. I, I got to warn you, the famine's coming. If Jesus is not your true bread, if he's not the one you're running after, you're going to, that famine's coming for you. The days of plenty will end. You might be there right now. And I don't even have to tell y'all about that. See, have you ever noticed that people that are hungry for Jesus, they've always got testimonies. Those are the people with testimonies. The people willing to say, no, I'm running after Jesus. He is the only place to find life and hope and wholeness. Those are the people hungry that have been saved from famine. See, hungry people have been saved by Jesus. They're quick to look around like Pharaoh and say, we need somebody. We need somebody to help me here. I need somebody to, to help me figure this out. And church, I want to level with you, even as one of your pastors, most of us here need to hear a word from God that we're afraid to be seen as needy. We're afraid to believe that the famine is really coming. We're, we're afraid to believe and see, to be seen running to Jesus as the only bread that could be found. We're afraid that we're going to be looking like we don't have our stuff together. We really are needy. We really are dependent. We really need something outside of ourselves to satisfy. We as the church, as Jesus followers, we are the only ones who knows where bread can be found. And we don't even want to run to it ourselves half the time. We need to repent. I need to repent of trying to look competent in front of you guys instead of dependent upon God. Now, I'm a needy man. Needy for Jesus. Every day of my life, every moment, I need to cling to him. You see, who serves as my greatest model to follow in this story? Isn't Joseph, it's Pharaoh. We must come to Jesus like Pharaoh came to Joseph. We've got to come looking, hungry, waiting for answers. Do you think Joseph was the top of Pharaoh's list. We're told he was not. He was actually at the last. He went to all the people around him, the people he thought he could find answers in, the magicians, the wise people. He's at the end of his rope when he comes to Joseph. This Hebrew, this one held in bondage at the bottom of a pit. He had no form or appearance that should make him lovely, but when he was brought before Pharaoh... You know what Pharaoh did? He heard him out. He heard the good news of, and the bad. 
And he was willing to lay everything on the line to accept Joseph as his savior. He gave him all authority. You, you run my life. I'm going to give you everything I got, everything I have. That's exactly what Joseph does. And that's what we have to do with Jesus, church. We've got to follow Jesus with everything we have. He deserves everything we have. And so often we see him as our last option to go to rather than our first. It's okay to be honest about that church. It's okay to not be okay here. I already told you all that, right? It's okay for me to be okay, right? Right? It's okay. So we need to ask ourselves some questions before we leave here. One, where are you holding back? Where am I holding back? Where am I ignoring gospel truths in my own life? Where am I putting limits on Jesus' rule in my life? See, maybe it's where you're holding back from coming to Jesus with your problems. Maybe you feel like your problems are too big. Maybe you feel like your problems are too big to actually say them out loud. Pharaoh could have kept these dreams to himself, but he didn't. Pharaoh said these things out loud. He brought these things out into the open, and he let Joseph have something to say about it. This is the way that we come to Jesus. We need to come to Jesus looking, hungry for answers, terrified of our own sin, terrified of what could befall us, but seeing the good news that only Jesus could bring. See, it might be a secret sin struggle for you. It may be a disappointment that you're carrying around in you all the time. Maybe it's doubts in your own faith and walk with Jesus. Guess what? Jesus is not scared of your questions. He can handle it. He is not like Pharaoh, like this king. He is a king that rules with kindness and gentleness and grace. He can take whatever you throw at him. Jesus can be trusted. Give answers. Maybe it's that you're forgetting gospel truths in your own life. Maybe if you're honest with others around you, you really see yourselves as hopeless. You see yourself as like beyond help. But I'm here to tell you that one place in all the earth to find bread in Jesus, there is hope in Jesus. Everything else in the world is famine. Jesus is the place of hope. He brings hope in hopeless situations. He brings fruit in places where there was suffering and shame. Maybe think to yourself, maybe you're in a place of pride and you're like, man, I've graduated from being needy on Jesus. And I want to tell you, that's a, that's a dangerous place to be. You don't graduate away from being needy on Jesus. It's moment by moment. You are needing to cast yourselves upon the rock of ages who is your only hope in life and death. So you got to think, if you're beginning to ignore your pride, that you are a sinner saved by grace. Maybe you're coming here this morning and you feel like you're alone. You feel like all the troubles of the world rest on your own shoulders. It's up to you to figure it out. And I'm here to tell you, this is a family here. These followers of Jesus, these broken people dependent and hungry for God here. Man, you got problems. Man, we got more. Maybe you're just... We're, we're just better at saying them out loud than you are right now. You're not alone. Confess. Find freedom. Find forgiveness in Jesus. See, you and I are more flawed than we ever dared think. But we, the good news of the, the gospel is that we're more loved than we could ever imagine. It'll take like eternity for us to really wrap our brains around that in heaven with Jesus. 
Or maybe, the last question, you might be actually putting limits on Jesus' rule in your life. Church, there's nothing out of bounds for Jesus' control. But often we can live like we aren't honest about the ways that he really is in control of all of it. Like your money, your possessions, they aren't yours. Stop living for them. Stop living for them. Today is a day you can find freedom from thinking you are defined by what's in your bank account. Jesus says, where your heart is, where your possessions, where your affections are, uh, that's where your, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You can find a new treasure that's greater than anything else on the all earth, the one place to find bread in Jesus rather than a firm grip on anything else. Maybe you've got a firm grip and you're like, man, I'm not letting Jesus get my pleasure. What I do with my body, what I put in my body, that's up to me. No one else gets to say anything. No, Jesus you are not your own. You belong to God. It's really easy to become a hedonist in our culture and to, to really think in a way that's contrary to the way that we're called to live as followers of Jesus. God really does care what we do with our bodies. God really does care whether it's sex, food, drink, or something else. We don't place anything above enjoying God himself as ultimate. He's the one who truly satisfies, and he has the authority to tell us about how these things can be enjoyed. Or maybe it's our comfort, our social comfort. This story says that the whole world came to Joseph for bread. And we, as the church, we're the ones who know where the bread is. And so often, we can feel awkward or ashamed or anxious about telling others where that bread is. Y'all, we're all beggars here telling other beggars where the bread is. This is all of our responsibility, and it takes all of us. Church, I'm going to close with these words from Hebrews chapter 1 that serve as a fitting end, painting a huge picture of the grandeur of Jesus and how he would come to fulfill this minuscule example in Joseph. Here, Hebrews 1. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Church, we know who the new bread of life is. We know Jesus, Christ our Messiah. We know where he actually is right now. He's seated at the right hand of God. And as we go to prepare to go to these tables here in a moment, let me pray that we would come to these tables running like hungry to experience the grace that only Jesus offers. Let me pray for us before we respond. Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning we would see you as our ultimate desire. God, that we would see you as portrayed in this story as this small image of what you would come to fulfill in totality. The completeness of the glory that you would show to the earth that you, Jesus, as the bread of life, would come and meet each of us individually. You would grant us not only life 
here and now, but life in eternity. She would, you would show us the way to live. A way where we use our blessing to bless others. Where we uh, allow you to move and shape us. God, I pray that this morning that those seeking for answers would find them in you. God, that those hurting and broken and searching for healing would find it in you. God, I pray that those who need just good news to cling on to, that they would wrap themselves around the good news of the gospel. You, Jesus, when we were far from you, came looking for us. When we were needy and broken, you came and you bound us up. Even right now, in this moment, this is the offer that you show us. You are the bread of life given unto all the world, and that anyone that comes to you will receive life and life eternal. We pray that in your name. Amen.